Jeffrey. Good morning, uh, Professor Stanton. Um, it's a, in a Virginia time around 10 o'clock on the um, May um, uh, 25th Memorial Day in the United States. And, and in the UK, uh, where I am, uh, we have a, um, a bank holiday. I, I believe it may be a similar uh, uh, occasion. Uh, today, we are going to um, talk about the um, uh, genocides uh, the, since Second World War in general, uh, international law, uh, the, the role of the courts, their impact on uh, prevention and punishment of the genocide. And then we'll talk about um, the uh, Gambia versus Myanmar. Huh? the legal challenge, the case um, that is uh, proceeding at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Myanmar has just filed, um, uh, you know, its first report uh, as required or as ordered by the court back in January uh, on Saturday, the 23rd of uh, May. Uh, before I throw uh, uh, my first question to Professor Stanton, um, about the Myanmar case at um, ICJ. Um, let me just introduce our renowned um, uh, uh, scholar here. Uh, Professor Stanton is the, um, you, I think uh, you can see the, um, just a second. Yeah, Professor Gregory Stanton has a very long and illustrious and, and consequential career as a, a scholar, activist, uh, the former State Department official. He's been involved in um, a very, very consequential international events, uh, you know, the, the, including uh, the establishment of the uh, Rwanda Tribunal, uh, the Cambodia Genocide Project. He drafted the rules and regulations for the uh, Khmer Rouge Tribunal uh, that is still going on in Phnom Penh. Uh, the, he's also involved in, um, you know, the different, um, you know, uh, uh, international and UN-led efforts uh, to end wars in uh, Africa. And uh, he also developed, uh, um, you know, what has become a, a rather standard um, conceptual framework uh, known as the um, stages of genocide. He has uh, extended the, the total number of stages to 10 uh, you know, in terms of understanding genocide. Uh, so, and he was educated at Oberlin College in Ohio, Harvard Divinity School, um, did a PhD in cultural anthropology at the University of Chicago and um, you know, study law at um, Yale Law School. So you could not get a better qualified individual or expert uh, uh, than uh, Professor Stanton. He also founded uh, uh, the very first uh, um, international coalition to end all genocides. Um, that he also was involved in setting up um, the, um, I think he chaired the working group to set up the Rome statue or the ICC. Um, so you can Google and uh, study his um, 
long and very distinguished uh, public service intellectually, uh, organizationally, and as an activist. So now, Professor Senton, can you comment on the International Court of Justice uh, provisional measure order and, and the, uh, the the Burmese case and the um, defense argument that this is no genocide? Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, at Genocide Watch, we realized this was a genocide as early as 2012 and declared it as such. Um, because the three basic elements to prove genocide are you have to prove that acts of genocide have been committed, which include killing members of the group, uh, creating conditions uh, of life that are aimed at the destruction of the group, uh, causing serious uh, mental or physical harm to members of the group uh, with its destruction in mind, uh, taking away the children of the group, um, and um, preventing births within the group. Those are the five <coughs> acts of genocide, but it, they encompass conspiracy, aiding and abetting, um, and incitement to commit genocide. In other words, the genocide doesn't even have to happen for you to be convicted of genocide. Um, so that was very obvious to us as early as 2012, when already the hate speech had begun and there were massacres, of course, and they rounded up people uh, in Sitway and Mongdao and other places and put them in essentially concentration camps. Um, what the world was refusing to recognize was that this is genocide and the um, standard denial term is ethnic cleansing. They say, oh, this isn't genocide. It is, quote, ethnic cleansing, which, by the way, has no legal meaning. It is not against the law legally. Uh, in fact, uh, ethnic cleansing is a term invented by Slobodan Milosevic uh, as a uh, cover-up for his own genocide in Bosnia. Um, what we saw was that the international legal scholars and UN and US State Department and everyone else was calling it ethnic cleansing. And what we found is that as soon as you, as long as you learn, use that kind of term, there will be no forceful action to stop it. And sure enough, there was none. Um, finally, as you know, in 2016 and 2017, the clearance operations in uh, Myanmar killed tens of thousands of Rohingya people uh, and drove about a million of them into Bangladesh. Uh, in 2017, there were at least 750,000 alone. And they're still fleeing. Uh, and there are still 600,000 Rohingya in Myanmar that are still being persecuted. Persecution, by the way, is itself a crime against humanity. Uh, what we had finally is a, a government, Gambia, willing to take this to the International Court of Justice. The reason for that is the Attorney General in Gambia was a prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And he knew genocide watch, he, I'm sorry, he knew genocide when he saw it. Uh, and he even went to the camps in Bangladesh and interviewed people. And he came back and he said, we are going to take this to the International Court of Justice because Myanmar has violated the terms of the Genocide Convention. Um, and he's right. Um, 
So that's what they did. They took, uh, he, he put together a team that included a very good law firm here in Washington, DC. Uh, and there was a, a whole number of other groups, of course, who um, lobbied for this, including Manzarni's own group, uh, including Genocide Watch, uh, and, and a number of others who said, this needs to be taken to the ICJ. That's the right place for this to be judged because this is a state crime. This isn't an individual crime. Yes, of course, individuals participated and should be, should be uh, prosecuted for their crimes. But this is a state crime, and that's what you take to the International Court of Justice. Well, uh, Gambia, I think, made a very strong argument at the ICJ. Uh, and they asked for, in the first phase of an ICJ case, you can ask for so-called provisional measures. Provisional measures are designed to essentially stop the action. It's, they're aimed at uh, preventing any further crimes. Um, and so, in fact, uh, Gambia uh, was successful in getting the International Court of Justice to order provisional measures. Uh, and the four that, in fact, uh, stand out and were, you know, ordered, in fact, by the ICJ uh, were, uh, first of all, that, uh, that Myanmar uh, take, should prevent the commission of all acts of genocide against the Rohingya. And, that, and they enumerated them. I mean, that was a pretty powerful thing when they s actually told Myanmar, look, these are the crimes, don't do them, including killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mentally harm, deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about the physical destruction in whole or in part, never forget the in part, and imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Okay, so they ordered them, stop it. And then the second thing they did was they ordered uh, that um, the army in Myanmar should commit no more uh, acts of genocide uh, against Rohingya who are still in Myanmar. And then third, they said that they have to take effective measures to prevent destruction of evidence in Myanmar, in this case. And finally, they uh, ordered Myanmar to make a report to the ICJ uh, within four months. And Myanmar has just, uh, has just given the ICJ its very first report on the 23rd. Uh, and this is a, it's a big step to have to order provisional measures. It's basically saying to you, look, we think you are really doing something very bad. And we think you're probably committing genocide, so stop it. Um, well, let me just, however, um, insert a note of caution here. Because provisional measures are not a final disposition of the case. They are not a ruling on the merits of the case. So both Gambia and Myanmar now have a long time, in fact, because the ICJ moves very slowly, unfortunately, to submit their final briefs, which are called memorials at the International Court of Justice. And those memorials will um, reiterate what they have said in their first arguments, which were held uh, last fall. Um, 
so let's take up those arguments because first of all, of course, Gambia made, I think, a very solid argument that all the three elements of the crime of genocide had been committed. First of all, these acts of genocide. Secondly, they were committed against a protected group, namely a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such, in this case, the Rohingya, who are Muslims, and also a different ethnic group from the Bamar, which are the majority ethnic group in uh, Myanmar. Um, so it is a protected group, and the ICJ has already ruled on that. They said, yes, this is a protected group. And then finally, the third element in genocide uh, proof is you have to prove that it was intentional. You know, this wasn't some kind of accidental, you know, leaking of chemicals out of a uh, chemical plant in Bhopal, India, or something like that. This was an intentional pattern of actions by the army in Myanmar. And the uh, evidence is just overwhelming about that. I mean, the mass rapes that all occurred on the same day, you know, the 25th of August uh, in 2017, uh, how could that have not been intentional, that it all happened at the same time, all over the Rohingya territory? Uh, so that's one type of proof. You have a pattern of actions. It's very unusual to find orders, actual, you know, spoken or written orders, go kill them all or something like that. You'll occasionally find it. I mean, the genocide against the Herero, for instance, uh, General Von Trata there in Southwest Africa actually issued an order saying, go kill all the Herero. But you don't usually find that. Uh, even in the Nazi Holocaust, uh, there was never, uh, they could never find a specific order saying, go kill them all. Uh, it, was, it was inherent in Nazi ideology uh, to try to, you know, wipe out all the Jews of Europe but it was never stated in a, in a very easily found order. So what we have instead is a pattern. Now, unfortunately, we're up against two ICJ cases here, Bosnia versus Serbia and Croatia versus Serbia. Uh, one was decided in 2007, the other was decided in 2015. In both cases, the International Court of Justice said, and I'm quoting here, uh, they said, the special intent necessary to destroy a group in whole or in part has to be convincingly shown for, by a pattern of actions, a pattern of conduct, to be accepted as evidence of such a pattern, it would have to be such that it could only point to the existence of such intent. In other words, in both these cases, the Bosnia case and the Croatia case, we have what I think is a very mistaken view of intent. Uh, just think about it in terms of international law, or in, of regular law, of just ordinary criminal law. And by the way, Professor Shabbos specifically argued this point in his argument for Myanmar. He even said, and I'm here quoting again, uh, he said, think about this the way you think about murder. Uh, to prove murder, you have to, to, you have to prove intent for it to be murder, otherwise it's manslaughter. Uh, 
And when you are proving it, you have to prove that's the only intent that the murderer had. Well, that's absolute nonsense. There is no criminal justice system in the world that requires that. What, is it, what it proves is that Mr. Chavez has never, ever been a criminal lawyer. He has never been a criminal lawyer. He doesn't understand what a prosecutor would have to prove to prove murder. And similarly, he doesn't understand what a prosecutor would have to prove to prove genocide. Because, yes, of course you have to prove the intent. In other words, in a murder case, if a guy holds a gun up and pulls a trigger, the intent is actually subsumed in the act, usually. But if you can show that, you know, this was clearly not some kind of accident, the guy happened to be swinging the gun around or something and it just went off and, you know, hurt the guy, uh, that, that is, of course, an, a defense that can be used uh, against uh, proving intent. Um, but normally in a murder case, the act itself carries with it the intent. Now that is a case also, I believe, with genocide. If you have a pattern of actions which very clearly point to uh, a coordinated systematic uh, campaign to wipe out a whole portion of the group that is being attacked, uh, you've got intent. Well, what Shabbos doesn't understand and has even said in his own argument and in his own uh, arguments about other genocides, uh, he says you basically have to disprove any other intent. Are you kidding? No prosecutor would think he would have to disprove, you know, that, oh, the real intent of this guy who pulled the trigger on the gun was to rob the other, rob the person. You don't have to disprove that. You can have more than one intent when you do an act. You're human after all. Exactly. And so let me just interject here. Uh, you know, uh, the, the human acts are often, um, you know, motivated by a multiplic multiplicity of factors. And, uh, you know, one single act uh, can be interpreted in different ways. But nonetheless, the impact is, you know, equally important. Like you said, in the act of murdering, the intent uh, is carried with that. You know, and in in look, I mean, genocide's a you know, surely mass murder, but the um, the key word, as you very well know, is the, the destruction. Yeah, that's it's right. Not, not just simply like you know, raping and slaughtering uh, the uh, you know the the uh, targeted victims. That's why you know, uh, the uh, professor Amartya Sen, um, a world-renowned um, a scholar on famines, especially, uh, the, he the the you know, looked at this case and gave it, uh, you know, uh, 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 to share his observation at Harvard uh, the, back in 2014, November, on this issue. He said, um, you know, you deny people access to nutritional opportunities, you know, systematically. That, uh, that is to say, you know, the Rohingyas are not allowed or severely restricted from accessing uh, sources of protein, sources of grain, you know, carbohydrate, you know, going to the field, um, cultivating their uh, uh, petty, uh, or like uh, fishing in the in the streams and rivers of Arakan State, or the accessing the uh, Bay of Bengal for their livelihood. You said, if you deny humans or community of human access to 
uh, life's essentials to sustain uh, biological beings, there can be only one single um, interpretation. That is, the you know the intention is simply to destroy that community, to kill them all slowly. You know, and I think I Lemkin also uh, talked about this sort of like you know racially motivated uh, you know feeding or in fact a denial of uh, you know deprivation of food. Yeah? So the the in the case of Rohingya, uh, we've focused a, a lot on the um, the you know fast and uh, mediagenic destruction and running away slaughter gory details. But this is the genocide that has been going on at a super slow motion uh, space over a span of 40 years. Yeah? And then, you know, there's, um, I think like in the uh, Genocide Convention, I think Article 1C, uh, 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 the, the, I, I forgot the, the, the number, but, you know, the, uh, the cre yeah. creating conditions right. designed to destroy the community. Can you comment on that? Like, you know, if, mm -hmm. if I mean, there are multiple uh, ways to establish this intent. We don't have to find a single smoking gun where the, right. it might not exist. Yeah? That's right. I mean, think about Darfur, for instance, where you had, you know, a systematic destruction of, of all uh, villages of the four, the Masali, uh, and so forth, the African groups who lived in Darfur. Uh, there you had a it was a slow motion genocide in which they gradually wiped out one village after another, leaving Arab villages untouched uh, and so forth. And so what you had was a clear intent targeting a particular type of person, namely an African black person, uh, and trying to replace their population with Arabs. Now, that is where we get to Mr. Chavez's defense of Myanmar. And this is a very dangerous situation. Um, he says, if unless you can prove that's the only intent, then you have, you can't prove your case of genocide. Now, he's simply wrong about that. But unfortunately, his opinion on this has had a lot of legal weight with the ICJ over many years, because Shabbos wrote his original treatise way back uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, and so both of the key cases in the ICJ on genocide, Bosnia v. Serbia and Croatia v. Serbia, rely on Chavez. In fact, uh, the, uh, the Bosnia case, you know, cites him, and, and the Croatia case in Judge Donahue's um, separate uh, statement, separate declaration, also cites him. Uh, in other words, Chavez's misconception of intent has now been imported into opinions of the International Court of Justice in both the Bosnia and Croatia cases, which were wrongly decided, both of them, because in both cases, the ICJ said, no, this wasn't genocide. It was instead ethnic cleansing. In other words, ethnic cleansing was used as a term of denial. And what we have here is their substitution for, in fact, <laughs> a crime which doesn't even exist, ethnic cleansing, it's not even a crime. They could have cost, called it forced displacement, which would have been a crime. But nevertheless, they say, because we can find this other, um, this other explanation, therefore, you haven't proven genocide. Now, that is simply 
nonsense. It's wrong, legally wrong. Well, and I think the ICJ, in other words, got it wrong. And the problem we now face in the Myanmar case is because it is precedent in the ICJ. Now, the ICJ doesn't operate the way a lot of other courts do. It doesn't have to accept its previous decisions as precedent because each case involves a separate country and so forth. And so it, it's not the same as a regular court. Nevertheless, in the Croatia case, they said, well, you know, after all, that's the way we thought about it in Bosnia, so we should really follow our own thinking here. And so in Croatia, they doubled the jeopardy against the Myanmar case, because what we've got here is um, the argument that by Chavez, that this is very much like the Croatia case, where sure enough, you know, a lot of people were killed, but the real intention, the real intention was, quote, ethnic cleansing. And you can even make it forced displacement. If the real intention is something else, then we have, then, then you haven't proven genocide. And that's simply legally wrong. Now, somebody's got to take this on and get the ICJ to reverse itself. I don't think that's likely to happen. That's why I'm, enter that's why I'm cautioning here. Gambia could lose this case because of these ICJ precedents. Even though the evidence to me is so crystal clear that this is genocide. And it is also, also forced displacement. This is what Shabbos doesn't get. He thinks you can only have one intent. He says, Odo, you know, ethnic cleansing is sort of mutually exclusive from genocide. Because in genocide, you close off the borders and you try to kill everybody. In fact, he even gets that wrong because you don't have to kill, kill everybody. You can kill just part of the people. But also, he, he, but then he says, no, it's inconceivable, and I'm quoting him there, inconceivable that ethnic cleansing could be genocide because the idea in ethnic cleansing is to drive the people out. Well, that's wrong. You yes, can have I, both crimes at the same time. I think I think like he's being like you know intentionally intellectually disingenuous uh, in in my in my uh, you know uh, uh, in my judgment. You know he was referring to the fact that the international court of uh, international criminal court in the same town in the same city in the Hague ICC has to open a full investigation looking uh, into um, uh, the crime of deportation. You know, right. because it involves the um, uh, cross-border displacement of people, uh, right. but through violence and terror. But but that's not necessarily the, the prosecutor um, that made it abundantly clear that she wasn't, she isn't looking, or her office isn't looking into a single crime of deportation. She has left the um, left wide open a possibility of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, looking at other uh, criminal elements, you know, there, there are multiple uh, elements and, right. but, you know, the, she is using the crime of deportation as the most obvious and would potentially, uh, you know, uh, uh, a successful uh, element to prove. And, and, and uh, you know, well, she, she let, me, well, yeah. let, let me just explain why, why she's chosen that. Because, you see, um, the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court depends on the crime being committed in the territory of a state party to the ICC statute. Now, Myanmar is not a state party to the ICC statute. So 
she does not have jurisdiction over crimes that were committed in Myanmar. What she does have jurisdiction over are crimes that include a state that is a state party to the ICC, which is Bangladesh. Bangladesh is a state party. Therefore, it is affected by this crime of forced deportation. That is why she's taken up that crime. It's why she says she can't really take up this crime of genocide in her court. But the ICJ can, the ICJ does take up state crimes. And, and, and Myanmar is a state party without reservation to the uh, Genocide Convention. And therefore, the uh, ICJ has full jurisdiction over this case. Yeah. Do do you do you not think that uh, um, the fact that the provisional measure order uh, was made unanimously yeah. uh, by by the entire bench, um, you know, that also included the ad hoc judge Myanmar itself nominated? Yeah. So do do you do you do you see early signs of uh, the judges feeling the overwhelming initial evidence that led to their unanimous decision. You know, these are extremely independent intellectual legal minds that put together uh, you know, uh, by well, the court from around the world. Some of them, <laughs> not all of them. Okay. Anyway, I I wish I could be that hopeful, but I would remind you of this: that of the judges who made the fifteen to two decision in the Croatia case, fully six of them are still on the ICJ today, including five. Who, enjoy, who, in, who were in the majority opinion on that case. And in other against words- Against genocide. Against really? genocide, who, who bought this, I think, specious argument that, you, that genocide has to be the only explanation. They bought this argument. Only one of them who's still on the court, who's still on the ICJ, who um, wrote a dissent in which he said, this interpretation of the Genocide Convention would render it totally inoperable. It would not, you could never apply it. You could never use the convention again. Uh, and he's right. Uh, he's still on the court. He's our only hope on that court. But I unfortunately have to conclude that these other judges, even though they may have been, you know, sort of bowled over by the overwhelming evidence that Myanmar had committed these crimes, nevertheless, I think there's a great danger that they'll stick to the stat, they'll stick to their old precedent of Bosnia and Croatia, and they will reject Gambia's claim. I'm really worried. And we have to take this up, you know, on a scholarly level immediately, because in fact, I, we've already uh, essentially censured Bill Chavez for arguing on behalf of Myanmar. The, um, the International Association of uh, Genocide Scholars? Yeah, well, we don't well, have a system of censure, of course, in that organization. I think it would be a violation of freedom of speech. But nevertheless, uh, we have written him a letter saying we think you were simply wrong, both uh, legally and ethically, to be defending a criminal regime like this. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that intellectually, like, you know, the reasonable people can have different opinions, but, you know, the, um, the, 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 the charges or accusations of Shabazz's, um, you know, 
uh, extremely low ethical standing in this case uh, is is very very uh, worrying, especially if uh, you know he has established himself as a reputable uh, legal scholar with the court. And so, so the so Not only that uh, he was the person who followed me as the president of the international. Uh, Association of Genocide Scholars. I asked him to run. <laughs> so, you know, now I'm like it, on, on this, myself, kicking yeah. myself for doing that. But nevertheless, and this is an important point, we understand that every, uh, everybody has a right to a defense. We understand that. But it, did it have to be Bill Chavez, who, uh, you know, was a former president of the IAGS? That's why we, as former presidents of the IAGS, wrote to him and said, this was a gigantic ethical mistake by you, Bill. You know, please uh, stop this uh, cooperation with a criminal regime because they're committing this crime and they're still doing it. And and what we, what I want to do though, in addition to that, is take down this uh, this interpretation of the Genocide Convention. I want to. I, I, it needs to be refuted because it is a as as Judge Gen, uh, Consado, uh, said in the in his dissenting opinion in Croatia, if that opinion if that approach is taken, that genocide has to be the only conclusion you can reach. The genocide convention is dead. Can we, there will can never we, ever be another genocide case in the ICJ. Yeah, um, I, I think that this this gives us a, a good uh, segue into um, uh, you know fundamentally. Uh, you know, a consequential issue where genocide argument has come to rest on the intent question, the, the subjective intent, you know, by nature, um, the intent, um, unless uh, there is a, a, you know, smoking gun uh, waiting to be discovered, uh, the human uh, behaviors are open to multiple interpretations. I mean, you're a cultural anthropologist, and yeah. uh, you know this is uh, not not simply a legal um, uh, the question. Uh, yeah. And uh, and and often, as you know, um, the perpetrators are um, you know far cleverer uh, than that we give them credit to. Yes, they are evil, but they are also you know very calculating. Uh, the, uh, the type of evil that does that uh, cost benefit analysis analysis and uh, also uh, like uh, like cats that uh, you know after they've done their business they cover their tracks you know as as mm -hmm. as much as possible yeah so, that's why they use uh, euphemisms to uh, characterize what they do they'll call it ethnic cleansing uh, they'll call it the final solution you know they'll use all exactly. kinds of words to hide what they're actually doing. And they will deny it all the way through. In other words, denial goes all the way from the beginning of a genocide until long afterward. Yeah, uh, um, can, you, can you like um, explain why this fixation among the uh, legal scholars and legal practitioners on the intent question with, mm -hmm. and um, with the impossibility of uh, Basically, with the establishment or the established, you know, bar that is so impossible to meet, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, um, how has that uh, weakened, um, you know, the 
post-Holocaust attempts to end genocide. You know, in other words, like uh, conceptually, the the, 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 the law has uh, 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 has set an extremely high barrier uh, to eliminate um, genocides. Right. Not only has it set a high barrier in, um, of course, in an ordinary criminal case against an individual, you have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's a very high, very high level of proof. Now, the International Court of Justice, in both its Bosnia and Croatia cases, announced that they were going to use that same beyond a reasonable doubt standard, essentially, as they put it, consistent or compelling. I mean, that's very similar to that. Uh, they are going to use that standard in judging uh, genocide against a state, whether it's violated the Genocide Convention. The ICJ doesn't have to adopt that standard. It's usually a civil court. It could adopt a preponderance of the evidence standard. I think it should, in fact. Uh, But somehow it's treating this as a criminal case, which is wrong. Also, there is a huge confusion. And in fact, it's echoed in the ICJ decisions itself. They keep calling it the mental element, the mens rea of the crime of genocide. I ask you, for a human being, an individual who clearly can have a mental element, okay, that makes sense. Does a state have a mind? No, a state has no mind. In other words, the way genocide should be judged for a state is by its acts and by the logical, reasonable, conclusion you must draw about the intentionality behind those acts. In other words, the only way you can prove genocide against a state, the only way you can satisfy the so-called intentionality requirement, and I this intent, I, I am not saying it's the mental element because there is no mind here. This is a huge mistake that a lot of international lawyers make. It's right in the opinions of the ICJ. They keep referring it to as a mental element. Well, they're they're, they're injecting um, something that doesn't exist into um, a criminal enterprise, which is a political state. Mm -hmm. And also, I think you're absolutely right, like, you know, distinguishing the uh, individual crimes uh, from the state crimes. Genocides, as you know, are uh, you know maybe com- are, are invariably committed by human beings, but they do so on behalf of the state. Yes, and or the state bears the ultimate responsibility. And you know, as ICJ, no individuals are tried; uh, only the state is uh, you know being um, the, the. I mean, terrorist uh, states, but they never left as a group. Right. Right. Um, so. Um, what do you I, think uh, th- th- needs to be established um, in order to, um, you know, meet this intentionality uh, bar? Well, I think first of all we have to change the minds of the judges on the ICJ about what you need to prove to prove intent. Uh, I hope we can do it. I'm not sure we can do it because you still got some judges like Judge Tomka. Uh, 
and others, uh, Judge Donahue. By the way, Judge Donahue was one of the lawyers in the State Department with whom I had to cross swords on the Rwanda genocide, on Burundi, on Cambodia, on a whole bunch of genocides, because she is a total conservative in applying the term of genocide. She was the one, in fact, who advised the Africa Bureau not to use the term genocide for the Rwandan genocide, and it paralyzed use of that term for three months in the State Department. Her opinion, she said they haven't proven intent. So you've got an intent denier right there on the in International Court of Justice. And you also have uh, Judge Tomka, who also denies it, uh, and others. There are, as I say, there are five of those Croatia deciders uh, right on the court today. Yeah, well, uh, that, that gives us a, a, a real uh, reason to be cautious and not, um, you know, uh, get too excited about what ICJ can, uh, you know, do for the Rohingya. Right. And That's really important because, you know, the ICJ, remember this, even if it decides there is a violation of the Genocide Convention, um, and you know, issues even sweeping orders like that Myanmar has to pay huge reparations to the Rohingya. It has to accept the Rohingya back to their uh, former homes. Uh, it has to pay Bangladesh and, and Malaysia uh, huge amounts of money, billions of dollars for housing these Rohingya that it drove out. It could make all those orders. In other words, that's within the powers of the ICJ. The problem is the ICJ doesn't have a police force. Right, right. The ICJ has to rely then on the UN Security Council to enforce its judgments. Now we have a UN Security Council, unfortunately, that is paralyzed by the firm five great power veto. Well, you—I mean, you're not the—I mean, you know this. Uh, You—you're not the first one to say it. Just uh, two months ago. Uh, the Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, told the BBC World Service exactly in those terms. You know, Security Council is completely paralyzed and UN is um, unable to do anything major without the Security Council's backing. And so, but now I, like... I, yeah, uh, let, let me caution you on that one because actually there is a way it could do it. It's just that uh, the great powers, none of the great powers, well, actually... You might get France and Britain to support this, but certainly not the U.S., certainly not Russia, certainly not China. Uh, there is still in the law, international law, a thing called the Uniting for Peace Resolution that says that when the U.N. Security Council was paralyzed, it was passed in 1950. It was the thing used to authorize the Korean police action, as it's called. Uh, the By vote of the U.N. Security Council, uh, it can send it to the General Assembly, where there is no veto, and the General Assembly can then uh, authorize forceful action. And that is what happened with Korea, and it's happened 12 other times. A lot of people don't know that. In Suez, in uh, the Congo, and certainly other places. So that is still on, I mean, it could be used. The U.S. hates it because we don't have a veto in it anymore. Even well, we yeah, I, I think like for activist community as well as the uh, the, the, the Rohingyas who desperately need uh, you know uh, international protection, this this is something that needs to be at least explored and uh, dis, uh, you know. Uh, and a good example of it, Zerni, is that's how we created the Cambodian Tribunal. 
right. we realized that it would be probably vetoed by the Chinese if we took it to the Security Council. Because after all, they were so in, they were very involved with the Khmer Rouge genocide. But they were, they were, you know, like pumping up to a billion U.S. dollar um, uh, into right. uh, Pol Pot uh, to regroup and, you know, fight the Vietnamese. Well, we knew that if we took it to Security Council, uh, it wouldn't pass because it would be vetoed by the Chinese. But instead, what we did was we got the Cambodian government to request assistance from the United Nations. Right. Uh, and then we got this uh, Secretary General and the uh, General Assembly to pass a resolution. The General Assembly passed a resolution which authorized um, assistance to the Cambodian government in setting up the mixed tribunal, which we had for in, in Cambodia. So it's a good example of how, in fact, you can get around the Security Council to accomplish right. justice. Yeah, I mean, like, if you look at the, uh, the history of the application of the Genocide Convention, uh, you know, that, that came into effect in, I believe in 1949 or 50, correct me if I'm wrong, um, how would you assess the effectiveness, you know, positively effective effectiveness of uh, the Genocide Convention as both a, a, a preventative or deterrence too, and the, uh, you know, uh, global um, accountability too, um, you know, since uh, the end of the Holocaust? I think it's largely failed. Um, now, one reason is there is no enforcement mechanism built into the convention. For instance, there's no um, committee that is supposed to oversee compliance with the convention, the way you have, for instance, with the Convention on Political and Civil Rights. Uh, there was no court created at the very start, even though it says in the convention that a court can be correct, created. Uh, and finally, we did create one with the International Criminal Court. We created that court finally. But until then, there was really no court where you could, um, you know, try anybody for genocide. So all the cases had to be tried in ad hoc tribunals, which we set up either through the Security Council, like ICTY and the ICTR, or through the uh, General Assembly. Uh, so having no punishment mechanism was, of course, a real problem. But worse than that, we had no prevention mechanism. Um, the only way you can get a peacekeeping force in the United Nations right now is through UN Security Council action. And normally that is very hard to get. Uh, the uh, UN Security Council can send in peacekeeping forces, but then it can also pull them out the way it did in Rwanda. So we didn't have a, we don't have a standing army for inf enforcement of any of these international laws. It all depends on you know state um, compliance. Uh, so that is another thing. We don't have the enforcement mechanism. But then, thirdly, we didn't even have an early warning mechanism. That's why I came up with the idea of creating the UN um, Special Advisors Office for the Prevention of Genocide. I wrote a paper about that back in 2000. We lobbied at the top. We lobbied with Kofi Annan with uh, his uh, top aides. Uh, Don Lo Turk and others, uh, Ed Mortimer, and they agreed with this. 
And finally, Kofi uh, uh, Annan announced that he would create that office back in 2004. Uh, and, you know, I've known all of the special advisors since then. Unfortunately, when it was created, it was also created with the specific prohibition that it should not declare that this is a genocide. It can only say, you know, there are risks here, there's problems here, and it has done that, uh, but it's often too late, uh, and it often is too much uh, subject to the politics of the UN, um, in which it's reluctant to, you know, insult countries, as they say. Uh, it is, in other words, it hasn't been nearly as effective as I hoped it would be. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's even worse than that. They even made a uh, they even made a statement that the word genocide can only be applied by a court. Well, that's nonsense. That's crazy. I mean, the truth is, sure, you uh, a court can can certainly apply the term genocide, but if we have to wait for a court, all the people will be dead. Yeah, I think that you you I remember you, um, you know, the testifying, uh, the providing your expert testimony at the uh, Permanent People's Tribunal uh, back in 2017 at the University of Malaya in Kuala Lumpur on the Rohingya case. And, you know, the, you delivered this uh, very memorable, memorable observation. Um, by, by the time courts arrived, in quotes, um, uh, you know, the victims are dead, you know, un, un, unquote. And, it's sort of like John Maynard Keynes, you know, when they asked him what the future was. Well, he said, in the long, what, what's the, in long, the long run? run we're all dead. In the long run, we're all dead. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that, what would you, what do you think um, Raphael Lumpkin would say to the present um, sorry state of the effectiveness or lack thereof the international law? And the um, you know the the post World War II system that uh, the Allied had created uh, that you know the the I mean he here was a man who dedicated his entire life uh, trying to give to, uh, all of us uh, a tool to prevent uh, the the repeat of uh, the Holocaust and uh, pre-Holocaust genocide such as the one in uh, uh, you know Turkey uh, against Armenians and others. Um, what what would Lemkin say to all of us, especially who, those who work within the international politics and and uh, genocide activism, including like you know human rights organizations such, such as uh, Amnesty International and uh, Human Rights Watch, mm -hmm. that have consistently deferred to this you know false deference that only a court of uh, law can pronounce or make the uh, genocide determination. Therefore. You know, neither uh, leading organization, HRW and AI, would ever utter the word genocide on any, uh, you know, uh, the severe systemic uh, intentional destruction of any community. Well, as you know, uh, Raphael Lemkin was there at the beginning for the UN. Uh, and he, in fact, wandered the hallways <laughs> lobbying for his genocide convention, and he got it. Of course, people uh, in the, the the uh, legends are that uh, when they saw him coming down the hallway, they'd head the other way because he was so uh, single-minded about it, you know. Uh, but they knew it all—it would be all genocide all the time if we talked to uh, Raphael Lemkin. Uh, actually, my wife and son sometimes accuse 
me of that very same <laughs> very terribly fatal flaw. <laughs> My son says when we retire, he's going to send us down to some really cheap nursing home in Mississippi, and he's going to set up the TV and a VCR, and it's going to be all genocide all the time. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> that's why we bought the house across the street so he can live there, and he, he can't do that anymore. Anyway, what I'm kidding you, of course, but I think Lemkin would be appalled. You know, he was really worried about the fact that the UN was already showing at its beginning that this great power veto would paralyze it. Um, and it was already showing that it didn't have the political will to overcome the nation state system. Because the UN is based on the nation state system. It's based on the Westphalian uh, model of the world in which nations, uh, you know, make up uh, the units in the world. And for very many years, for centuries, uh, as anything, a, a, a government did within its own territory was okay. It could get away with it. Uh, well, as, was, as, as long as uh, the internal behavior doesn't affect the flow of capital and, and disrupt right. the, uh, the right. trading and, you know, right. all, all that. What I'm saying, though, is that this nation-state system is something we have got to transcend. And I think that uh, Raphael Lemkin uh, completely understood that. Um, as have many other great men. I think, well, for instance, Albert Einstein was a major uh, supporter of the World Federalist Organization, which has always said, look, nation states aren't the ultimate unit for human beings. Uh, we need federation between all kinds of units in the world, and they don't have to just be nations. So, I mean, that approach, I think, is the future. I think there'll be more and more, if you will, confederal or federal sorts of arrangements between groups. They don't even have to be within, you know, bounded by nation states. I mean, think of the Kurds, for instance. <laughs> Those, they're in, I think, four or five different countries. And they're all, they should be, of course, they should have their own nation state under the nation state system. But maybe we're even going to be able to move past that. I mean, look what Europe has done you know, to move beyond the nation state. Um, and they're not there yet, but they're moving there. Uh, I think that's a huge step. And so I do think that he would be appalled right now at the failure of our current international institutions. And he would say, look, we have to make another step. It's kind of like having, you know, the Confederate States of America before we finally had the current federal system in the United States. Right. But, you know, the, 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 to pick up on the earlier point, uh, you know, the, the mental element, as if states have uh, a mind of their own and, uh, you know, can be treated like uh, we would treat uh, uh, a fellow human beings. Yeah? And so, the, you know, the Genocide Convention has about 140, 150 signatory states. Uh, some make uh, uh, reservations, uh, uh, you know, to uh, certain articles, but nonetheless, uh, there is an, you know, over 100, close to 150 political states who are clustered as members of the United uh, Nations, and and so it's only 92 actually, and 109, and that includes little places like Palau, and you know, I mean, my goodness, Palau has equal vote in the General Assembly to China. <laughs> yeah, 
No, I mean, like, you know, the, with with respect to the uh, the uh, the application of the genocide convention, yeah, because uh, it, it is not simply a statement of uh, you know goodwill or or or, or you know uh, the uh, declaration of principles like the uh, uh, the responsibility to protect with no legal teeth or uh, no courts to back it up. But this is an interstate treaty, the Genocide Convention. Right. And, and every single member state is obligated yeah, right. uh, to ensure that the terms of the, um, uh, the treaties are not violated by any other member states. And why it, why it, you know, it takes so long? Why, why Gambia? You know, why, why not, you know, Gambia is not a leading liberal light in the world, not even by a long, you know, uh, uh, stretch of imagination, you know, well, like Ger Germany, the United, you know, Netherlands, yeah, and, 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 and the, the, the political states that were under Nazi occupation, you know, why are they not, you know, showing, you know, principles or compassion? You know, I mean, states are run by humans. And states don't make their decisions first. Like, would you do you do you think that uh, only Gambia has stepped forward out of 150 states that are party to this convention indicates how miserably failed we have as an interstate system? I do. Um, I would note, however, that actually Gambia was representing uh, the Islamic uh, Conference, which has got 52 member states. I 57. Think. 57. And, you know, it wasn't representing it before the ICJ because the ICJ only uh, can hear cases by nation states. So, in fact, that was one of the arguments Myanmar tried to use. As they said, hey, look, this is an, IC this, this is an Islamic Conference trying to make a case here. And the ICJ re rejected that. So they said, no, it isn't. It's Gambia. And so, um, but nevertheless, that was, a, I think, a positive thing. That the first thing Gambia did was take it to the Islamic Conference and then say, will you support us here? And they said, yes, we will. Um, so there has been some progress, I think, in that we have these other organizations which are transnational. Uh, I think the European Union is a good example of it, actually. So I do have some hope for our progress, if you will, <laughs> in the world. Right. Nevertheless, it's clearly not adequate. I mean, goodness knows, look what Assad has been able to get with, away with in uh, Syria and Russia. I mean, bombing civilians, these are war crimes. Uh, and they, there's no uh, accountability, except maybe Places that have universal jurisdiction, like Germany, are beginning to try people who show up in their territory and who committed, for instance, torture in Syria. That The first case has been now lodged in Germany against a Syrian torturer who took refuge in Germany, and they arrested him. And they said, you're on trial here because we have universal jurisdiction. Well, it turns out that uh, most of the nations in Western Europe uh, England, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the U.S., Canada, we have universal jurisdiction for certain crimes, including genocide and torture. Now, I'd like to see that the next step 
towards enforcement of international law should be making all crimes against humanity, all war crimes and genocide, crimes of universal jurisdiction everywhere in the world. So we well, uh, like piracy. Yeah, you know? I, I, it, is, it, is, it is really um, inspiring to hear you um, talk positively about uh, the, um, you know, activism and also new ideas about what can um, actually work in favor of um, advancing um, the human welfare. Uh, but, but as you know, the, um, you know, the, you've been, uh, the, you know, the very closely identified with the um, international campaign uh, to end, uh, you know, all genocides and, uh, the, you know, the progress and the gains have been, ex you know, excruciatingly slow but you still keep on pushing, you know, in your uh, at least like official retirement, but obviously you're not retired. I don't think you will retire. But um, in, in the last, uh, let's say like, you know, five or six minutes uh, we have left, uh, um, I, I, want, I want to uh, the, hear your own personal background. And I understand like uh, you came from the uh, a long line of, uh, you know, abolitionist, you know, anti-slavery movements and women's okay. suffrages. Yeah, like, you know, your, your, your fourth or fifth generation grandmother, uh, your grandparents, side, you know, the, uh, the uh, uh, Katie Stanton and the Henry Stanton. Can you, can you talk about how the consciousness that you were raised with, that you came from that, you know, very progressive humanistic political tradition? you know, lawyers and activists. Uh, how how, the, I think how does that been, carry you forward, you know, well into your, um, you know, 70s? <laughs> well, I feel very blessed. I feel that I was born into a family that, um, you know, had seen the unity of the human race very early. You know, the the mistake racists make is thinking there's more than one there's no all these races are made up right we belong to one race the human race and this is something that elizabeth Cady stanton understood she understood women and men are part of the same race too who the, she she was also the uh, the chief philosopher if you will yeah. behind was, the uh, suffrage movement and and i understand like she also came over and make, uh, you know, inter-Atlantic uh, uh, con contact with the um, British abolitionists uh, and suffragists in this country. You know, right. uh, almost almost a century before uh, the, the war of feminism uh, became, uh, uh, you know, put into circulation. And in, she in still, the, if you read her, uh, you read her, her writings, and she was a wonderful writer. She wrote most of the speeches of Susan B. Anthony, for instance. So those two were very close friends um, all through their lives. Um, and, but, I mean, she's still a radical today. <laughs> she, you know, she was opposed to a lot of the way uh, the requirements that people were putting on women, how they should dress. She hated high heels. She hated all the other stuff that women have to put on to please men. Uh, you know, she wrote a thing called the Women's Bible that got her actually ejected as president of the suffrage movement in the United States because she went right. through the whole Bible and, and basically wrote a commentary, uh, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Not all of it, of course, but I mean, all, a lot of very important parts of it. 
in which he said, you know, this clearly was written by men, for men. Uh, and so, you know, don't expect anything here, really. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a great heritage. And but on the other side of it, you know, it was very personal too, because my um, this this is her, right, Elizabeth Elizabeth. You know, that very portrait was on the mantelpiece of it was on the over the mantel of my great great grandfather in uh, Loversville, New York. She was born in Johnstown, which is the adjoining city. But in, nevertheless, you know, when you think about that wonderful heritage, and I do believe actually the women's uh, liberation movement is going to turn out to be as important as the anti-slavery movement, or maybe more important. And it will be as important as any other, well, probably more important than probably any other human rights movement in history. Uh, but that heritage, which was then, of course, taught to me by both my father and my mother, um, is where I grew up. And I feel incredibly blessed to have grown up with that consciousness. Um, you know, I'm, I have uh, then, of course, had a, a incredible, wonderful education to prepare for this work. Um, one of the things to just, I think, remember about me is I do not believe that what I'm doing and what, what we can do together is my work alone. I think it's all of our work. And even more than that, and you don't have to, of course, be a believer. I think you can just realize that all people have consciences. They're all built in. People are born with consciences. There is a sense of justice in every baby. You just try to do an injustice to a little kid, a little child, a toddler, and they will cry out at the injustice. I mean, I believe the human race is imbued, is in, endowed with a sense of justice all around the world. And that that sense of justice is why we eventually are going to win, why we are going to have a success in making this world a better place. So that's where I come from. Now, you know, where it led, I had no idea that I'd be going into the work against genocide until I went to Cambodia. What I saw there was the first genocide I'd ever seen. Uh, walking through those mass graves, talking to the survivors, and almost everybody had lost somebody. Uh, I came back to law school realizing those Khmer Rouge needed to be put on trial. Also came back with an awareness of how huge this problem of genocide is. It killed more people in the 20th century than all the wars combined. And in many ways, war and genocide come from the same fundamental misunderstanding about our nature as human beings. War has come out of, especially in the 20th century, nationalism, but it is also part of this same will to power by elites that have, has plagued the human race right from the start. And so you don't have to have capitalism, you don't have to have communism, you don't have to have any of these so-called isms to have genocide. 
The truth is, it's been with us from the start. You can read the Bible, and you have, you know, the claim, at least, that God is ordering Je Joshua to slaughter all the people in Jericho. I don't believe that was God, of course. I think that is a complete misunderstanding of who was living in Jericho and who the Jewish people were, who the Hebrew people were. But, you know, that problem of making other groups somehow less than human and therefore outside of our moral concern and even, even people that should be killed, that problem has been with us all the way from the start. We have got to overcome that. Um, that's Rush, where I Yeah, I, I think it, it, it's been an extremely uh, rich uh, perspective and observations, both personal and scholarly, you have provided um, uh, uh, myself and others who will be watching it online. But I, if, if you would uh, um, allow me, um, I'd like to follow up on this conversation and obviously, you know, like to, to jam into an hour, 15 minutes conversation, your life's work of uh, intellectual and uh, activist um, uh, history is utterly impossible. So if, if you're up for it, eh? Um, I'd, I'd like to have a sequel of this um, that will rearrange it and then uh, the, for the first, so let's just call this the, the first uh, okay. uh, the part of, uh, of uh, the, uh, this uh, conversation and we will uh, get into your uh, you know, philosophical reflection on, uh, on genocides, on uh, you know, quote unquote human nature, uh, history, law, and, and so let's just call this the part one and uh, we will come back to it. And then thank you, thank, thank you for your time. And um, I would love to do that with you, Zerny. I'd love to join my brother Zerny in doing that. Thank you. Yeah, uh, we we call him um, uh, Uncle Chit, um, uh, Uncle Love in uh, Kuala Lumpur, where we were um, the, the, trying to um, the converse with the Malaysian uh, senior officials uh, to, to to support the uh, genocide. Um, uh, case um, through different um, uh, international legal channels and all right well you have a, a wonderful day and and uh, we're going to sign off and then i have to do some editing okay thank you okay. yeah i'll be in touch about the uh, the, the second part yeah? okay okay bye now bye, -bye.